my, where are my people that when you were in high school, like you enjoyed English? Where's all three of you? There you are, okay, yeah. Where's my math people up? Yeah, geometry does not count, you know what I'm saying? Oh, well then like 37 hands more went up, so. Uh, where's all my history people? Like, I can tell you the first name of all of my history teachers. Coach, you know what I'm saying? Like, it just, <laughs> it just was. <laughs> um, for those of you that enjoy history, today is your day. Today's message is yet another kind of tipping point in the life and the journey and the ministry um, of Jesus. And this event we're going to talk about in Mark chapter 11 triggers what we call Holy Week, or some people call it Passion Week. And it's the last week of ministry where Jesus is in Jerusalem before he would be arrested, before he would be executed on a bloody cross. But ultimately, that's not how the story ends. He'll be resurrected out of the grave on, on Easter Sunday. And so I know some of you absolutely love when I, when I talk about history, and you love those conversations. Uh, then there are some of you that your eyes get a little bit heavy, <laughs> Your breathing starts to slow, you know, like I have to yell just to kind of wake you up. I understand that. But let's be real. We're reading a book that's 2,000 years old. So the Bible itself is history. And today, to kind of really get the most out of this story, we're going to pull up some pretty cool history nuggets. So everybody say, I love BK. So my non-history people, just embrace me, just, just love me, all right? I want to read the whole story to you today, so just kind of be patient. I'm going to read through about 11 verses here. We'll start Mark chapter 11, verse 1, so you can get the gist of the story. And it's what we call the triumphal entry, where Jesus enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey. So verse 1, as Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the towns of Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them ahead, go over into that village over there. As soon as you enter it, you'll see a young donkey tied there that no one's ever ridden. Untie it, bring it here. And by the way, if anyone asks, what are you doing? Just say, the Lord needs it, and we'll return it soon. Verse 4, the two disciples left, found the colt standing there in the street, tied outside the front door as they were untying it. Some bystanders, some bystanders demanded, what, what are you doing untying that colt? And they said, what Jesus told them to say. And they were permitted to take it. Verse seven. Then they brought the colt to Jesus. They threw their garments over it and he sat on it. Verse eight. Many in the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him. Others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. Jesus was in the center of the procession and all the people and the people all around him were shouting, praise God. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Praise God in the highest heaven. Verse 11, so Jesus came to Jerusalem. He went to the temple. After looking around carefully at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon. Then he returned to Bethany with his 12 disciples. In the Bible, there are four books that deal with the story of Jesus. This is what we call the Gospels. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Three of those books, their storyline, their, the word is synopsis, if you will, they tell a pretty similar story. They may not all give the same details, but there's timeline flows. And so it's what we refer to as the synoptic 
Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then you have John, who's a little bit of an outlier. John's timeline is a little bit different. doesn't mean that it's incorrect or anything. But you have Matthew, Mark, and Luke that are the synoptic Gospels. And then you have the Gospel of John. In the four Gospels, there are ten events, ten stories, that all four of them tell that detail. They give those stories. There's ten things where all four of the Gospels tell the same story. Meaning there's a lot of stories that only John tells and the others don't. Or there's some stories that Luke might tell that the others don't mention. Or there's stories that all three of the synoptic Gospels tell that John doesn't mention. So there's only ten stories that all four of the Gospels have in unison. Two of those have already taken place. They happened early in Jesus' ministry. One of them was just Jesus began his ministry in Galilee. That's one that all four of the Gospels tell. The other is the miracle where Jesus fed the crowd with 5,000 men. Now, we think there were more than 5,000 there that day. The Bible just says with 5,000 men. All four of the Gospels tell those two stories. Jesus began his ministry in Galilee, the feeding of the 5,000, all right? The rest, the eight others, will all happen during this coming week, during Passion Week or, or during Holy Week, okay? Matthew chapter 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, and John chapter 12, they all tell this story. This is one that all four of the Gospels tell the story of how Jesus enters into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. The donkey is really important. We spent some time talking about donkey, okay? And as he's riding on the donkey, the crowd is singing and they're praising him and they're honoring him, okay? So if you've been with us through this journey in the Gospel of Mark, several, several weeks ago, we talked about the idea that the Jewish people of Jesus' day, they weren't expecting a Messiah. They were actually expecting two. They were expecting two different messiahs. The first one that they were expecting would be what we call the suffering messiah. His name would have been Messiah ben Joseph or Messiah son of Joseph. And he was prophesied primarily by Isaiah. Because his prophecies don't necessarily go in the same thread that the other ones. So they developed this idea that there wasn't going to be one messiah, but there would be two. Isaiah 53, it's, it's a good example. It's like, but he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins, beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. There's this idea of this suffering Messiah. The other Messiah that they were expecting was the soldier Messiah, the more predominant theory of what the Messiah would be like, Messiah ben David or, or son of David, okay? And, and, and this was prophesied primarily have to do with the end of times. Uh, the book of Daniel talks a lot about the soldier Messiah, or Psalm chapter 2, or Psalm 72, or Daniel chapter 7. Zechariah chapter 9 talks about this Messiah, and I want to read from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It says, Rejoice, O people of Zion, shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you, he is righteous and victorious, yet he's humble, riding on a donkey. Actually, riding on a donkey's Cult, to be more specific. So here's a little fun fact. Of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew is the only one that gives the detail that there were two donkeys that day in Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. He said that there was a mama donkey, and then there was the donkey's colt that Jesus rode on. And when I say colt, I don't want you to get this image that the poor baby 
got this grown man riding a baby donkey. It's not that. Because a colt, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a horse or a donkey that hasn't done the things it takes to give birth to other things, right? To give birth to other donkeys, and donkeys can't even get pregnant anyway. It's a whole other story. Or it hadn't been ridden yet, so it's just young. Fun fact, the, the age of the horses that run in the Kentucky Derby, they're two, maybe three years old, and so a lot of times they're referred to as colts. Okay, so I don't want you to have this idea that Jesus is trying to straddle on this little bitty baby donkey trying to come down the mountain. It's not, the animal was clearly big enough to handle a full-grown man. Okay, Jesus, like so many Jews, were traveling to Jerusalem, which was the custom for several of the Jewish holidays. Now, there's, there's a long list of Jewish holidays, but a couple of them were big, significant holidays that people would actually travel to kind of the, the capital, primary city of Jerusalem. That's where the temple would be. And Jesus is most likely in a caravan with all of these pilgrim travelers. But it's also possible that the caravan formed around him because of his popularity and people wanted to see a miracle or wanted to see him do something. But many of them were traveling with Jesus and they were expecting him to become the soldier messiah whether it would be an army of like a militia as Jesus is going along that people would leave their homes and bring whatever weapons they had, or had Jesus prearranged for there to be an army that somewhere on his journey from Galilee to Jerusalem that all of a sudden there would be this army and as he walks into Jerusalem, he would kick the Romans out and say, your day is done, there's a new sheriff in town. A lot of the people that were following Jesus were expecting that army to show up. I know the Red Bull's kicking in. I'll try to calm down. I'm talking really fast. Okay. So you have this group of people that, that's following these pilgrim travelers. They're coming to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Okay. So for those of you that may not be aware of what Passover is, it is a big Jewish holiday that commemorates the events that took place in the book of Exodus. Okay. The book of Exodus has the word exit in it, right? It's it's the children of Israel being set free from the slavery and the bondage and the oppression of the Egyptians. It happened almost 1,500 years before this day where Jesus is on the donkey. Okay, So for 1,500 years, the Jewish people would gather and they would celebrate the Passover, which is one of their biggest festivals. Like To put it into context, it's probably equivalent to our Christmas. Okay? Christmas is our biggest holiday in terms of dollars that are spent, the travel, etc. Okay, so when you hear Passover, I want you to think it's their really big. They have other big holidays, but Passover was the granddaddy of them all. All right, now it, it's equivalent to our Christmas. Now they celebrate different th different things. Christmas and Passover, two different things, right? But in terms of effort, cultural importance, grandeur. It was equivalent to how we celebrate Christmas. It's just a big deal, okay? Everybody with me? So I want to flash back a little bit into the timeline of Jesus' life, back to his birth, okay? And in the story of the birth of Jesus, there's a character that the Bible will call him King Herod. History calls him Herod the Great, and he was appointed to be the governor over the Jewish people. He was appointed by Rome, but he was the governor over the Jewish people. We see him in Matthew chapter 2. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. That King Herod in history is known as 
Herod the Great. Matthew would then go on and tell the story of the wise men, but Herod the Great was alive at the birth of Jesus, okay? And so if you're going to start doing math, if you've ever studied the birth of Jesus, numbers start to get a little, a little bit wonky. And I don't want to go too much into the birth of Jesus because that's a whole another conversation. But there was a Roman monk by the name of Dionysius Exiguus, all right? Dionysius set out to determine the day or the year that Jesus was born. And what he wanted to do was then start counting history from Anno Domini, A. D means the year of our Lord, okay? So again, I don't want to dig too much into that, but the year zero was he, his best math, that's the year that he decided that Jesus was born. The problem is he missed it. He, he was wrong. He was wrong by maybe five, even six years. So, so numbers can be a little bit skewed one way or the other, and I don't so wanted to get all that, okay? Herod the Great, King Herod, Christmas Herod, he was still alive roughly in 4 BC, okay? And Herod had placed this golden Roman eagle, if you will, on an eloquent stand. The problem is he, he placed it at the gate of the Roman temple. Excuse me. He placed it at the gate of the Jewish temple. And to the Jews, that's blasphemy because you don't put a pagan statue in in our temple area or around any of that. So that, that didn't go well for the Jews. It was, it was blasphemous. So there were two Jewish revolutionaries or activists, be a word, by the name of Matthias and Judas. And I want to pause because in the New Testament, we have a Matthias and we have a Judas, two different guys, okay? Very common names back then, okay? So there were two Jewish activists. Again, we're in 4 B.C., that they thought Herod was on his deathbed, so they decided that they would wait for the right moment, and then they would tear down this big Roman golden eagle. Well, they do. And Herod was alive enough, he was awake enough and coherent enough to find out who it was and do something about it. So he has Matthias and Judas and some of their followers arrested and brutally executed, has them killed, Okay. Well, so this 40 groups of students that were with Matthias and Judas that, that Herod had killed were teenagers at best. Some of them were, were kids, okay? Well, this obviously, this tragic event sends an uproar throughout Jerusalem, throughout the Jewish community, okay? In and around the same time, after Herod does this, this is one of his last acts, he dies. And one of his sons takes over the throne. Everybody's still with me? Say yeah. yeah. Uh, elbow your neighbor, because I'm getting a little historical here. Some of them are starting to... <clears throat> I fell asleep about this point in first service. So Herod the Great is dead, and for a very short time, just a few years, his son, Herod Archelaus, tries to take over control. Problem, Archelaus is only 19 years old. Okay. But he wants to be a leader for the people. He wants to be a leader of the people. He thought his father was old and crusty and out of touch. And he wanted to win the hearts of the Jewish people. And, and so they were like, okay. Well, if you want us to like you, there's some things we're going to need you to do. 
You remember Matthias and Judas and those 40 teenagers that were killed? We want you to find the people that killed them and we want you to punish them. Oh, and by the way, your dad had some servants that helped him and they, they were just ruthless. We want them killed as well. And it put Archelaus in a really, really tough spot because he wanted the people to like him, but he couldn't start killing Roman soldiers, okay? On top of that, he decides at his coronation, he's a 19-year-old kid, right, that he's going to dress himself in white robes and he sits on a golden throne to the Jewish community that could have easily been interpreted that he's claiming to be their Messiah. Well, that doesn't go well with the Jewish people. And Passover's approaching. Their big holiday, Passover's approaching, right? And Passover is what we call a pilgrim festival. Two or three of these festivals, people would leave their homes, travel in caravans for safety. They would go to Jerusalem so they could be at the temple to worship during the festival. All right? These pilgrim festivals, specifically the Passover, create some issues. Number one, it stressed the city. You're dumping thousands of people into a city that's not equipped with that, with hotels and things like that. And so people need places to stay and people need food to eat and they need places for their animals. And so, so, so it just literally, you had all these extra people in it just stressed out the city of Jerusalem. Secondly, these crowds would create somewhat of a mob mentality. Crowds behave boldly. People on their own may not break the law. They might not be so bold, but when you put them with the energy of a crowd, people make some pretty poor decisions. And so these pilgrim festivals, all these Jews would come together, and, and if you weren't careful, it would create this mob mentality. And then thirdly, they were gathering to celebrate their freedom. They were gathering to celebrate that God had set them free from the oppression of Egyptian slavery, but now they're basically slave to the Romans. And so you've got a stressed out city, you've got a mob mentality, and we're gathering here to celebrate how God has set us free. The problem is we're not free. And it was a ticking time bomb. An old man, Herod, kills two Jews and 40 teenagers, he dies, his 19-year-old son's now in charge with a massive political mess on his hands. And the Passover of 4 BC turns ugly really, really, really quick. I don't want to get into all the details of what happened, but basically, Rome started to squelch some of that mob mentality. People gathered, as many could gather into the temple, thinking it would be a place of sanctuary. And the Roman soldiers marched into the Jewish temple in Jerusalem and they killed over 3,000 Jews in the Jewish temple. Well, that didn't play well. Archelaus has no choice but to cancel Passover. And he sends messengers throughout Jerusalem throughout that Passover has been canceled. How do you think it would go over if Washington, D.C. said they were going to cancel Christmas? That, that it just wouldn't go over. And this Passover cancellation and the, the slaughter of 3,000 people in the Jewish temple, that actually would cost Archelaus his leadership and his status as governor of Judea. Things just did not go well from him. Caesar replaces him, puts somebody else in power. Okay. Now, 
Rome is always a little bit on edge when these pilgrim festivals pop up on the calendar, right? Because it stresses the city, mob mentality. Oh, and by the way, these Jews are gathering to celebrate their freedom that they no longer have. And so the Romans would break up big crowds. You, you couldn't have big gatherings. Uh, I don't know if, you, if you've seen the, the TV series, The Chosen, about the life and ministry of Jesus. You see this play out in that whenever Jesus is doing a miracle and there, there's, a, there's a big crowd, they're making a point in this series to show you the Romans don't want big crowds. Romans don't want a mob mentality and they're building up to something and, and, and that's part of this story. So 4 BC, the Passover that was canceled, all those people were murdered. That's part of why the Romans start to get nervous when it's time for one of these pilgrim festivals like the Passover. If you're still with me, say yes. Okay. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. There's a caravan with him. Some of them are looking for him to be the soldier Messiah, gather an army, march in and kick Rome out. Some of them are expecting that. But there's something inside of Jesus. He knows it's time. His conversation is more intentional. His conversation is more intense. The conversation that he has with the disciples, he keeps telling them what's going to happen. He keeps telling them what's going to happen. From the time he comes off of Mount Transfiguration, he resolutely set his face for Jerusalem. And that's really all he talked about and taught about. Let me show you this in Mark chapter 10, verse 33. Listen, this is Jesus talking. We're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man, referring to himself, will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. They're going to sentence him to die, hand him over to the Romans, they will mock him, spit on him, flog him with a whip, kill him. But after three days, he will rise again. He's speaking very plain about what is going to happen once he gets to Jerusalem. He's left Galilee, walked down the whole Jordan Valley, landed at Jericho. He healed blind Bartimaeus. And now he has started this journey from Jericho to Jerusalem. It's about 20 miles, but there's a 3,000 feet elevation difference. So he's climbing all the way up to Jerusalem, and he winds up on the Mount of Olives. It's a beautiful place where you can look down and you can see all of Jerusalem. And he sends two of his disciples like, hey, go over there. There's a colt that hasn't been written. Bring him over. And um, the donkey's really important. So... Let me show you, Zechariah chapter 9. I know I've already read it, but I want, I want to go back to this prophecy. Zechariah chapter 9. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Keep in mind, this story is set in Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He's righteous, he's victorious, yet he's humble, riding on a donkey. Okay, So the donkey's really important. Here's a couple things about the donkey that I want you to see. Number one, the donkey was a prophetic statement. Zechariah says, your king is coming on a donkey. Solomon, who replaced King David when he was named king, by the way, took the exact same route that Jesus took coming out the Mount of Olives. He was riding on his father's donkey. There were only two people who could hold the title son of David. Granted, David had several sons, but there were only two people that could hold that title, son of David. Solomon, who would become his heir to the throne, and the Messiah. 
And Solomon rode a donkey on the exact same path. And now Jesus, coming down off the Mount of Olives, is on a donkey. The donkey was a prophetic statement. I, I wish I would have studied Mark like this years ago, because I'm just telling you. You see the intensity of his dialogue. You, you see how things flow. You see from the Mount of Transfiguration how he's resolutely set. And, and like that's all he talks about is the cross. He's reminding the disciples of what the kingdom of heaven is really like. And it's always, I want to say bothered me, but it's always been a question for me. Why when Jesus would heal somebody, he would say, okay, you're healed, but don't go tell anybody. Hey, you're healed, go present yourself to the priest and then go home, but don't tell anybody. Why wouldn't you want to tell somebody? Why wouldn't you want as many people as possible to hear the message, the good news that Jesus was bringing? But he would heal somebody and then he would say, hey, don't, don't, don't go tell anybody. It's time. Jesus coming off the Mount of Olives on a donkey, it's time to tell everyone. It's time to say, I'm the one you've been looking for. It's time to say what Zechariah prophesied. Your humble king is coming on a donkey. It is time. No more. Don't tell anybody. It's go tell everybody. Jesus is making a public declaration according to Zechariah chapter 9. I am the one you've been waiting for. The donkey was a prophetic statement. If that makes sense, say amen. Whew. You wishing you had a Red Bull too. Secondly, the donkey was a position of humility. Zechariah 9 said that. He said that. So in my Bible, I'm going to open it up right above this passage. It says triumphal entry. That's what we call it. If you, if you go on Wikipedia or Google it, triumphal entry. That's what we talk about, where Jesus comes into Jerusalem on a donkey. And I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure that title really fits. Especially in comparison to what Triumphal entries actually look like in 33 AD. So when a Roman army would go to battle and then they would return back to their home base or whatever town they were stationed out of, or if they were returning back to Rome, they would have a triumphal entry. They would have a triumphal parade. And this is what that parade traditionally would look like. First, they would send load after load, wagon, cart, whatever, chariot, full of plunder. All of the spoils of war that they had just conquered, they were showing the people, hey, <laughs> it was very beneficial for us to go do this. Look at all this wealth that we're bringing into Rome. Then secondly, after the plunder would be the prisoners. And, and, and some of these may be soldiers that they didn't kill, but the Roman army was ruthless. They would kill the soldiers, even the ones that surrendered, they would kill them on the battlefield. When I say prisoners, this would be the commanders, maybe the lieutenants or the generals, but this would be an act to humiliate the army that they had just defeated and give honor and pride to the Roman army. So you had all the plunder, then you had the prisoners, and then you had unit by unit by unit, you had the Roman army just marching in and just in lockstep, it was impressive, it was dominating and they would just march in this triumphal parade and the families and the crowd and the cities would just cheer and celebrate the winning victorious army as they marched in. Then at the end, after the Roman army, you would have chariots that were pulled by the most majestic horses or these big, strong, white horses, they would be carrying the commanding officers. 
And it would start with the lieutenants and then the captains or however they organized them. But at the very back of the parade, on this big, beautiful, strong, white steed of a horse, would be the general who oversaw everything. He's responsible for everything that's in front of him in that triumphal parade. That's what a Roman triumphal entry looked like. And here you have Jesus on a donkey with somebody's coat and him sitting on it. It doesn't seem very triumphal. It was Jesus reinforcing what he had been teaching to his disciples. The kingdom of God is based in humility. The kingdom of God is based in love your neighbor. The kingdom of God is, is based in service. And the donkey was a prophetic statement, but it was also a position of humility. And then lastly, it was a comparison of two kings. So if I could go back to this Passover of 4 BC where all those people were killed, okay? Passover was canceled. After that, Rome starts to crack down on crowds, particularly around the pilgrim festivals where people would travel to Jerusalem. They didn't want the mob mentality. They didn't want the stress to get the best of them. And, and so Rome would just, if there would be a big group, soldiers would just show up, y'all stop and just scatter, all right? So Jesus is drawing a crowd. There's people lining the streets. They're throwing their clothes down. They're throwing palm branches for him to walk on. They're, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Why didn't the Romans break that up? It's a great question. Why didn't the crowd get arrested? Or Jesus, he's the one responsible. He's the one sitting on the white dog. Why didn't he get arrested? So we think, and again, you can get lost in the, in the date of of Dionysius and when Jesus was actually born. But April 28th of 33 AD, we think that's the day that Jesus rode that donkey out of Mount Olives into Jerusalem. April 28th of 33 AD. What the Bible doesn't tell you, because it's not important to the gospel narrative, but what other sources say that's the exact same day that Roman governor Pontius Pilate rode into Jerusalem as well. And his arrival would have been completely different than Jesus. It would have been a massive parade of fanfare and grand Roman production. And here's Jesus with a caravan that's traveling. And some of them have branches and and they're singing. It's a comparison of two kings, right? You have the grand, majestic Roman governor riding the best horse that money can buy and companies of soldiers marching in front of him. And then you have a humble, suffering Messiah riding on a borrowed colt. It's a comparison of two kings. It's a comparison of two kingdoms. Wrestled with this. Wrestled. BK loves some history, obviously. God, I, I, I understand we want to know more about the Bible. I understand that we're just walking through the Gospel of Mark. But what does this have to do with me and you and Hill Spring Church and Sand Springs and, and Oklahoma in 2023? What, Jesus rode a donkey. Okay, what, what does that have to do with us, and I wrestled, and for a couple of days I wrestled, and I wrestled. Poor Jerry, I wore her out. Just, like I don't know. Figure that out. 
And here's why I think it matters. Number one, I think you and I need to be careful what king we choose. The only reason we know Pontius Pilate's name <laughs> is because his name is attached to the arrest, the trial, and the crucifixion of the real king. If there had been no Jesus, you and I wouldn't have a clue who Pontius Pilate. There, he rode in in grandeur and a majestic horse. But if it wasn't for Jesus, we'd have no idea who that clown is. There are people in that day with Caesar, who was, who was the Roman king, he was the Roman emperor. There are people in that day, that Caesar, that's your job, is that Caesar is the name above every name. Caesar is the one and only chosen son of God. <laughs> and those people were wrong. They picked the wrong king. Be careful what king you serve. Listen, if money, if you choose for money to be your king, it will leave you empty, wanting, and only starving for more. If you choose for sexuality to be your king, it will never be satisfied. Everybody say, I love BK. You sure? If you choose for red or blue political parties to be your king, you will always be disappointed, typically every four years. Because you're putting your trust in a man when you and I should put our hope and our affections attached to a heavenly king named Jesus. Be careful what king you choose because Jesus is the name that's above every name. Jesus is the alpha and the omega. Jesus is the beginning and the end. Jesus is our comforter in our time of need. He is our provider. He is our creator and he is our sustainer of life. And somebody ought to say amen. Be careful where you play your trust. Be careful where you place your affections and be careful what king that you choose. Secondly, the power of humility. Oh, it's throughout this story. It's throughout Mark 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16. The power of humility. Just in Mark's gospel alone, three times in the matter of two chapters, Jesus reminds his listener that the kingdom of heaven is opposite of human nature. Human nature is I need to get mine, I need to make money, I need to step on you so I can get ahead, I need success, I need success. And Jesus reminds them three different times, just in those two chapters, that's not including the rest of it, that the last shall be first, that the least shall be greatest. That you and I ought to take the towel off and wash somebody else's feet. We need to love our neighbor. There is power in humility. Being humble means putting other people first. That's what Jesus did. So when you and I are humble and we walk in humility, guess what? It makes us more like Jesus, and that's a good thing. Humility also shows a quiet confidence. Somebody brags on you, oh, I love the way you... Blah, blah, blah. Hey, man, I'm, thank you very much. I'm, I appreciate that, but it's really God. It's really God that it's all from him anyway. I, I wouldn't be who I am without God. There is a... Quiet confidence in who God made me and who God made you. Listen, I'm not a self-made man. I didn't make my, it's from Jesus. It's from God. There is this quiet confidence that comes through humility. But humility doesn't mean you got to roll over either. Sure, I know Jesus said somebody hits you, turn the other cheek. 
Sometimes that's just called wisdom. But you can be humble and strong at the same time. Jesus humbly rode a donkey down the hill off the Mount of Olives. But then he had the strength to face a Roman court. He had the strength to face the bloody execution of a Roman cross. You can be humble and strong all at the same time. Humility goes a long, long way. And finally, we won't find point number three in Mark's gospel. But keep in mind, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four of the gospels tell this story. So I want to borrow something from Luke's gospel. Number three, let's... Let's get to worship. You've heard the, let's, let's get to work. No, let, let's get to worship. It was a beautiful thing. I, I would love to see it. The people would travel all down the Jordan Valley and, and, and people would join those caravans and join. I mean, like it might start as 30 people and it might be 3,000 by the time. That's just one caravan by the time it got to Jerusalem. And there is a book of songs that they would sing as they travel. So just imagine this massive group of people walking down this dusty road down the Jordan Valley as they're going to Jerusalem to be a part of a grand celebration that the whole nation would stop and celebrate. And they would sing these songs, just the voices crying out in there, what we call the songs of ascent. They would sing them as they travel, as they would ascend to Jerusalem to prepare their heart to worship God at this festival. And so there would just be just thousands of people walking along singing this song. So Jesus is on this donkey. He's headed to Jerusalem. There's a caravan of pilgrims. They've been singing for days. And you would think they would sing a song of ascent because that's what they've been singing. A little fun fact. The songs of ascent begin in Psalm 119. But the story that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell, the song that the crowd sings, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That actually comes from Psalm 118. And it is a psalm of Hallel. I'm not cussing. It's a psalm of Hallel. It's where we get the word hallelujah. It would be a song that you would sing as a family or whoever is gathered celebrating the Passover. And for those of you who've been around for a long time, it's a song you'd sing at the fourth cup. Some of you, that means nothing to you. But it's a song of hallelujah. It's a song of hallel. That's what they would sing. Psalm 118 to declare Jesus, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Matthew doesn't say this. Mark doesn't say it. John doesn't say it. But Luke gives this part of the story. So you've got this crowd that's singing Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the Pharisees, Jesus' kind of adversaries, kind of the bad guys of the story, the religious elites, like they're, they are fired up mad because this crowd is basically saying, he's the Messiah, he's the Messiah. And they're going, blasphemy, you can't say that. Stop that. Red Bull's really coming out right now. I got you. You can't do that. And literally they say, Jesus, they can't do this. Luke's Gospel, chapter 19, verse 39. But some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. And Jesus replied, My man, if they kept quiet, then the stones along the road 
would burst into praise. I don't know about you, but I don't want a rock to do my job. I don't want to have to have a stone speak up for me because my faith has been silenced. I get it. Life is hard. Sometimes we have to worship through the pain. I mean, Jerry and I have been in a tough season. Oh, great. More bad news. And then we just say, you know what? We're going to praise him anyway. I'm not going to let somebody silence my faith. I'm not going to let life, I'm not going to let the heavy stuff, I'm not going to let circumstances silence my faith. I am not going to be put in a situation where a rock has to do my job because I won't worship him. You, let's get to work, let's get to worship. God, even when it's a tough day, I'm going to worship you anyway. Come on, somebody say amen. Maybe you're here today and, and you're not in right relationship with the Lord. Listen, I don't, I don't want to leave that you don't have the opportunity to resolve that tension that's going on in you. The Bible says that all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Like when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, that entered sin into the human equation. And then all of their descendants, which that's you and I, all of their descendants now had this issue of sin that we had to deal with. And Jesus said, I'll go. See, he was seated at the right hand of the Father. He was in heaven. But he said, I'll go resolve this sin issue. He was miraculously conceived in the Virgin Mary. He was born, he was fully human. Jesus hurt like you hurt. He was tempted like you and I were tempted. He wept, he cried, he laughed. I think he had a great sense of humor. He was fully human, but Jesus all had something you and I didn't have. He was fully God as well. He had an ability to overcome temptation. He had an ability to say no to sin lurking at his heart's door. So he qualified to be a perfect sacrifice. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. He said, I'll go, I'll let them shed my blood to be the perfect sacrifice to make a way for everybody else to be made right in relationship with their creator. And so they nailed him to a Roman cross and his blood was shed. And they pierced his side with a spear and his blood was shed paved the way for you and I to be forgiven of our sins. While you and I were dead, while we were stuck in our sin, Christ died for you and I. The book of Romans says if you'll confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, not just a good teacher, not just a historical figure, that he really is the Son of God, he's Lord, and you believe in your heart. Man, it's a big ask for me to say, hey, something that happened 2,000 years ago on a wooden cross impacts your eternity. I know, I know it's hard to understand that. That's why it's called faith. I'm saved by grace, through faith. You confess with your mouth that he's Lord and believe. I wasn't there. I didn't see it. It's okay. Just have faith to believe. I, I don't, I don't want to just believe. You're saved through faith. Believe in your heart. God supernaturally raising from the dead. You will be saved. Do you need that? Is there anybody here today you know you're not in a relationship with God. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to ask you to walk the aisle. I'm not going to ask you to talk to anybody. I just simply want to lead you in a prayer. It's the best way I know how to confess and believe. All across this room, nobody moving around. Every head bowed, every eye closed. 
you're here today, you know you're not in right relationship with the Lord, I just want you to invite you just to whisper this prayer with me. ready? Just pray this. Say, Dear Heavenly Father. Right there, just, Dear Heavenly Father. I come to you today because I need you. I'm a sinner. I've made a lot of mistakes. And I don't want that anymore. Would you forgive me? Would you come into my life? Begin to change me? I may not understand all of it. But I'm taking that step of faith. Today, Jesus, I surrender my whole life to you.